this meeting is being live streamed. We're legally obligated to tell you that in the state of California. <laughs> it's, 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 I forgot what it was. It's value after hours. We're off to an incredible start. Uh, I'm Tobias Carlisle, joined as always by Jake Taylor, my co-host. Special guest today, Corey Hofstein of Return Stacked. What's your, what's your, what's the global branding now? Well, it, it is still newfound research technically. I can't drop that. Oh, We're about yeah. to hit our 15-year anniversary, wow. actually, in, in six days, which is giving wow. me a midlife crisis more than any birthday has given me. But yeah, Return Stacked <laughs> is is the product brand. Appreciate you guys having me on, a guy who knows literally nothing about value investing. So this will be a good one. Well, it makes three of us. <laughs> I was hoping one of you could explain to me what happened to the value comeback. I was rooting for it. <clears throat> well, I feel like it's... I feel like it's... Kind of, I think that if I look at the... The outperformance underperformance. The, the outperformance started on the long side. Like I, I had a miners and muddied a little bit because it was long short, but long side started Q3 uh, 2020. So like July, August, September. And then it's not been a straight line, but it's been better and better through that period. I think it's sort of compounded away a little bit. And then at the start of this year, so that was like two, two and a half years. And then the start of this year, we've seen that little echo. Um, of whatever it was that that boom, and then really sits call the- it a, a little echo, <laughs> a little. I get the Nasdaq up like forty percent, the yeah. Dow Jones up five, and I know that's like I know that's like Gen Z versus Boomers, like to to say that, and the S and is nice in the middle for for us millennials, but um, <laughs> I mean that's not a little echo. No, it was yeah. it's been legit. It's a pretty big bounce, but it lost it lost steam pretty quickly too. But like February to June, I was I said. A few weeks ago, probably probably going to get cancelled for this, but I said it was like being back in Nam. You know, I had the, I yeah. had the uh, shell shock. The, yeah, it was it was tough through that period. Yeah. Well, um, I, you know, I like I like Cliff Asnes's take on this, which is like the value spread got so wide that you don't expect it to contract quickly or like smoothly. Like for as wide as it's gotten, it's going to take years and it's going to be a bumpy ride, and you just need to sit with it. That's what I think. That the only thing that I would say to that, though, is that you know, if you look at, I look at Wes's Alpha Architect spread as a pretty good because Wes drills right down to EBIT EV, which is basically the thing that's driving all of my stuff. And so you and look that, at that like every thirty minutes or forty five minutes. <laughs> refresh, <What's> the- <laughs> refresh, refresh. <laughs> to be fair, it only updates once once a month. So thank God. <laughs> I, I know that it is six business days after the end of the month, though. So I am like every forty five minutes refreshing then. Uh, that collapsed like the month before last. That it not not all the way to when I say collapsed, like it's come in a very long way. Well, June, then, right? June had a nice value rebound. The June or July? June had a nice value rebound, didn't it? Like June, value yeah. was up sixteen percent. Long only value. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know the actual. I don't know the the numbers, but yeah, June it was, sounds good if you quote a number though, whether it's right or wrong. It sounds <laughs> like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> February to Ju- February, March, April, May was was a nightmare, and then June one, it just took off like a rocket ship, and that's sort of a lot of the three. It's now outperformed for three years as a result of that, but that's mostly it came in June. You know? Well, that's a, that's typically how value is, right? Like it's very episodic. Like I know people always talk about, you know, you can't time markets because you know you miss the best days. Look how much you would have underperformed if you looked the last twenty years and missed the best ten days. The value factor, as I've looked at, at least for the quantitative lens, is, is very similar, right? Like there's, if you look at the aggregate performance of the factor, it happens very episodically and yes. it's very hard to guess when that's going to be. So you just have to structurally or strategically allocate and be frustrated 95% of the time. That's right. But do you think that's yep. unique to value or do you think that that's true of all of the asset? I mean, you, you would know better than than I would because you're across more of them. What, what yeah, do you see in the I mean, ones? I think there's a lot of other factors that at least in the back tests have much smoother, not as much brain damage. Yeah, much smoother return profiles. Even value in the back test has always been that way episodically. But I would make the argument that's probably more why I'd lean into value being a risk factor versus a behavioral premium. Like interesting, you know, it's got you need that. You need that risk to emerge. You need the the weak hands to fold to pass the premium to the strong hands. It's got to be episodic. Uh, versus so when are you saying the you can risk harvest the behavioral side maybe a little bit more continuously with other factors? When you when you seeing the, the 
you're seeing people tend to, I mean, one of the things that I've seen is that when when the people think the market's going to sell off value, I think sells off before the market does. So do you think, is that people getting nervous selling out of the stuff that's more cyclical in preparation? Probably. And if you hold through that period, you do a little bit better. Probably. I mean, it all depends on how you construct value, right? Value doesn't always have to be more cyclical than- um, That's true. Depends on the nature of how you construct it. But the pure it. price ratio, the way Cliff would define it, just the pure price ratio, not looking at the other. The value the value as a philosophy, guys, would say that you should count all of the other quality balance sheet, like the Graham and Dodd, Buffett-style guys would say, look beyond just the pure price ratio. And so the, the academic value guys would say, well, we include those things too, but we don't call those value. We call them quality. We call them yeah, whatever else. Yeah. So I've got some sort of philosophical bullshit about this that I'm happy to spin on about. Which this is, is a which podcast. Is, sir. Yeah. This is exactly what this you is the exact it. right forum for some philosophical bullshit. Well, I mean, so you were mentioning <laughs> you tend to see value sell off before a recession, and I, and and there's a lot of discussion. And again, I, I come for the more pure quantitative side, like about quantitative factors in the economic cycle and when they should do well and when they shouldn't do well. And I have this view of like. If you know which factors are going to do well in which parts of the cycle, like if you know value always does well coming out of the cycle or whatever, whenever it is. Out of the bottom, yeah, I would say. If, if you believe markets are efficient, which I guess if you believe in factors, they unless they're pure risk factors, like behavioral factors, clearly the market's not efficient. But if you believe the market's reasonably efficient and you know with certainty when these factors should do well in the cycle, then predicting the cycle itself should almost be impossible. You shouldn't right. be able to predict the cycle with great certainty because if you could, you could create a very profitable timing strategy. On the other hand, if you think that you can predict the cycle with a great degree of accuracy and you believe the market's pretty efficient, then you shouldn't be able to know which factors will do well in which part of the cycle. Because again, that would allow you to create a timing strategy. So I, I don't, and I believe the market is generally pretty efficient, right? Doesn't mean that over the long run, value can't deliver you a risk premium or there aren't certain behavioral, you know, low sharp strategies that can deliver you a potential opportunity for excess returns. I, I certainly believe that. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's pretty efficient. So so when I hear people talk about something does well in a certain part of the cycle, pre-recession, expansion, contraction, whatever it is, I tend to say like, well, I'm, I'm not sure that actually holds up historically or, or I can rely on it with a good degree of confidence going forward. The only thing I would say is that you're looking a little bit, you you see the sell-off in value and you wouldn't necessarily say, well, that means that there's a recession coming, but if then a recession and the sort of associated stock market crash does then follow, you wouldn't, I would say that pretty consistently value is a good bounce out of the bottom, but then you would say, well, you can't predict where the bottom is. Yeah, but is that, the, is that just because in. it's higher beta or do you think that's something intrinsic to it being value? I you think know, it's, I would, yeah, you go, sorry, JT. Well, I was, gonna... I was just going to say that, you know, I think when you, there's a bit of a binary uh, effect here where a lot of these companies appear to be existentially threatened in a, in severe economic hardship. And when you go from zero to one of no longer, you know, existentially threatened, I think there's a lot of return there. Yep. And so if you're able to capture that somehow, I think that's, that's, that might explain why a lot of it is so punctuated. I can buy that. You can sort of talk about the equity having a convex payoff profile. And as you get further away from default, mm -hmm. right, that's going to get, you know, if you're buying near default and then you get further away from default, there's a convex return profile there. Right. I agree with right. you, though, that the I would not have much confidence in being able to time either the cycle or the economic cycle or the uh, profile of companies that tend to do better uh, or worse in different sections of that. I yeah, think that so the market would figure that out and for whatever reason, price it out eventually. So it should come as no surprise, like a lot of the index providers who provide some of these factor strategies that go into ETFs, then the natural progression is like you provide the building blocks, then you provide the strategies around the building blocks. And they all came up with sort of like factor timing stuff. And and a lot of them came up with white papers around timing regarding um, market cycles. And they define those market cycles typically with uh, different economic indicators that you could go back and test. So you can back test these concepts. And every single one I've looked at 
right? The back test profile is absurd. They they perfectly time when yeah, to go into these. It, it yeah. absolutely kills it. And one of the tests that I do as a quant whenever I see something like that is I say, well, how much is this strategy an outlier? Like, let me assume I'm going to use their economic indicator, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to randomly choose which factors go into which part of the cycle. So let's say there's four parts of the cycle. I just randomly choose which factors go into each. I backtest that. And then I'll do it again with a new basket randomly choosing. And I'll do it 100,000 times, just coming up with random samples. And then I'll say the one they chose, how does that perform relative to the distribution of all these random ones? And lo and behold, it's always like 99th percentile. <laughs> it's like, it's hard to argue when it's so different than random that it's not completely done with hindsight bias. Yeah. What do you think is the actual true in also of this sample size? Like how many cycles are we really talking about that if, that we can look yeah. and draw inference from? Yeah, that's a great question because I think it depends with the granularity with when you like how you define these these cycles. Um, like I've done some stuff with economic cycle work, and you can take it back to the seventies, and you can sort of define, you know, uh, inflation, expansion, contraction, economic expansion, contraction. You can talk about sort of four quadrants there, or if mm -hmm. you can, you might be able to break down the the economic side is like what are they? It's like hot overheating contracting recession like there's there's maybe four cycles you can define there um but the problem is most of those indicators start to be just monthly right so you you get 12 signals a year and even if you go back 40 years how many truly independent not a lot yeah and most of it's us focus cuz us data is way better than the rest of the world cuz we just started gathering the data and we have the databases which i think largely goes overlooked so I think most of it's an exercise in data mining and or what's hard to get around, right? And I think this is maybe one of the, I don't want to say fundamental problems some people fall into, but value did so well in the dot-com era that it got the reputation as being a defensive factor. And yeah. I don't think that's inherently true. I just think the dot-com era was a setup for value to be defensive because it was a valuation bubble. Yeah, but not every recession has a associated valuation bubble, right? So it doesn't inherently have to be a defensive factor, and yet it might get bucketed as such simply because of our understanding of history. So well, it I, certainly I just wasn't the last are, one in the right. last big drawdown. It wasn't defensive, but then I I have sometimes said, you know, that the reason that it performed so well in the two thousands is because it did so badly in the late nineteen nineties, right? And it was so the spread like then was very very wide. And then similar sort of thing through that, like 99, 2000, I think rhymes somewhat with 2019, 2000. No, there's no, it's not a 20 year cycle. It just so happens that they fell at about that point. And then there's been no sort of, even though I think value is relatively cheap relative to the, to the expensive side, we haven't seen, like it drew down more in the 2020 bust than like most of the value ETFs that I track drew down more than the. Uh, than the market through that period of time. And I don't think that there's been any sufficiently big drops since then to kind of really test and find out. Although 2022, I would say, tracked value tracked basically the rest of the market. hasn't stood out yet anyway. Yeah, I think you another anomaly too with that that dot-com time period was the the quality of the businesses in the value bucket were really high. I mean, you had tons of cash flow at that point. ROEs of that worst decile, cheapest decile, were higher than the, the best or top 10 most expensive uh, version. So that's a very, very rare setup where you get both really cheap and also pretty good companies in there. And that, I don't think we've really seen that since. Yeah. I mean, my recollection, you talk about, and again, like this is, this is one of those great examples of like statistical time versus behavioral time, which I, I stole from Cliff Asness in this idea of like, I can look at a chart and be like, statistically like this is a small blip it's an anomaly behaviorally yeah. living through that is yeah. so hard so to your point toby which like i i think coca-cola is a great example i mean coca-cola peaked in like june 1998 and then went on to have like a 50 percent drawdown to 2003 like and i don't think that was a company i have to go back and look at the valuations but I, my recollection is like coca-cola was not massively overvalued in 1998 uh, yeah, it was pretty stretched. It was like, oh, 60, was? It was like a 60 See, this is P. This is why I can't be a value guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, was it really a 60 PE? I think yeah. so, yeah. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, I think through that late, late 1990s is often, people remember it as a dot-com bubble, but as it was as much a large growth bubble as it was anything else. Because if you look at, and I did this exercise in about 2015, I was buying a lot of... Um, I was buying a lot of leaps in 2015 because there are a lot of these really old like Walmart and Microsoft and uh, I don't think I looked at Coke, but there are a few a few of those names like that. The, the underlying fundamentals were great; they were still growing roughly like the way that they had been in, into the late 19 into into that bust. But they've been so expensive that it took them 10 or 15 years to work off the overvaluation. So the stock prices were all flat for these giant companies. And so there was no vol in the leaps either. So the, the leaps were cheap and the companies were cheap. And I remember, distinctly remember buying them in 2015 thinking, I've only got two years for these leaps to run. I hope that's enough time for these things to come back to life, you know, because they haven't done anything for 15. Yeah, uh, They did come back to life then and I wish I'd bought more, but it, th- those things happen. That was pretty smart. I think yeah, how, come you, how come you didn't tell me? <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> we were definitely call, friends back then. <laughs> I guess we weren't, Jake. <laughs> one of the one of the things not that, that close. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I learned from you, Corey, that uh, that I was very grateful for was that the timing luck uh, idea, which is one of the problems with the any back test that, and no matter how careful you are, if you're rebalance, whenever you're rebalancing, I mean, in quantitative value, we did a we did a year end. We did a, a mid-year rebalance using year-end data, so it was six months of data, six-month lag. So most of that data should have been in the public domain by the time we traded. But it's very sensitive to the date that you roll. If you get a, if you roll close to March two thousand and nine, like if that's in your close to the bottom in March two thousand nine, you get vastly better performance than if you roll in that's, September two thousand. That's uh, research affiliates immaculate rebalance. I would argue the the entire history of that firm changes if they didn't rebalance in March. I, mm. You've heard, you've heard that story, right? Have I told that? I must have told that story before. I, I, I tell it again. Oh. Yeah, tell us again. Okay. So research affiliates. If you don't know who research affiliates is, they are a massive asset management firm based out of Southern California, uh, led by Rob Arnott, or historically led by Rob Arnott. I think he's he's moved on, and there's a woman who's CEO there now. Um, he might be chairman. Uh, long story short, he publishes this methodology in 2005 called fundamental indexing. His argument is that companies in uh, your index should not be weighted relative to market cap. They should be weighted relative to their fundamentals. And he publishes this whole index methodology and says he's revolutionizing indices. This is There's a very funny debate between him and Cliff Asness at this time because what Cliff points out is all this is is a value tilt, and Rob <laughs> refuses to acknowledge it and refused to acknowledge it for like a decade. You can't get like, the trademark on value tilt. You gotta yeah. So he, indexes. anyway, so he publishes this concept. It's basically a glorified value tilt, and in the index, he arbitrarily chooses to rebalance every March, and he rebalances once a year. And so, coming out of two thousand nine, he rebalanced March two thousand nine. And outperformed the benchmark by a ridiculous amount. Um, you can actually look at this. There's a there's an ETF that was around at the time tracking his index. I believe the ticker is PRF. I believe it's an Invesco ETF, if I'm not mistaken, Rafi 1000. And you will see the relative performance to the S&P 500 is ridiculous. I think it's like an extra 1,000, 1,500 basis points in 2009. And then uh, since <laughs> then has had the usual value struggles. Now. What happened in 2010 is that some researchers from Ro- Robico in the Netherlands, David Blitz and Pim Van Fleet, and I'm blanking on the third gentleman, my apologies, wrote a paper that said, well, that's interesting. But what happens if you take that same index methodology and instead of rebalancing in March, you rebalanced every June or you rebalanced every December or September? And so they actually ran those counterfactuals. And what they found was that if instead of rebalancing in June, Rob had arbitrarily chosen to rebalance in September, he actually would have underperformed the S&P 500 Mm. in 2009. So you go from like outperforming by 10 percentage points plus to underperforming the market using an identical methodology, just rebalanced at a different point in the year. Now, to Rafi's credit, and they, they were using FTSE, I believe, as their index publisher at the time. FTSE, Rafi worked together and 
implemented what the paper suggested, which was to do these overlapping portfolios, which would basically take some sort of the of timing it, risk out. Yeah. To think of it in a simple way, it's to say, look, you want to rebalance once a year. That's fine. Pretend like you've got four managers. One of them will rebalance in March. One will do June. One will do September. One will do December and give a quarter of your money to each and then keep rebalancing across each of them. And what that'll do is that'll get rid of the timing luck. Um, this has become a, uh, I wouldn't even call it a passion of mine anymore. I'd probably call it an obsession, like to the point it's a little deranged <laughs> how much I care about the, yeah, it's a religion for me. Like I'm starting a cult around it. Um, but right. So, so Rafi goes on and, and this lives on forever in their track record. Like it's not like they restated their track record to say, actually, we shouldn't, lucky. we shouldn't have outperformed by that much. It should have been less. And of course they raised an absurd amount of money. Um, and that's history, right? And you go and you say, okay, like an active manager got very lucky, but I want to point out like the benchmarks that everyone uses, like Toby, you get benchmarked to the Russell 1000 value, I'm sure, or the Russell 2000 value. Those rebalance once a year. Who's to say that that index didn't get absurdly lucky when it rebalanced? It's a horrible metric. And yet we use it as and as an entire industry. So I, I'm going to stop because I will literally just keep talking for the rest of the what's hour the, about what's this. What's the solution to it? The, the, what's the so, you can either do the f- four overlapping portfolios or just rebalance more often. So so those are different solutions, right? So what I would argue is when you have a alpha signal, right? So call it value. You generally have an, an idea as to what the decay cycle of that alpha signal is. What do I mean by that? Momentum. When you trade momentum, momentum signals are very fast. It's a high turnover signal. So you need to rebalance that very frequently versus value tends to be reasonably slow. You And, and when you take T costs into account, transaction and trading costs, like you probably don't want to refresh your value portfolio every day necessarily. Like You wouldn't want to trade it every day. You might want to trade. You might only want to update it every six months or every 12 months to avoid noise trades at the fringes. So what you first want to do is figure out what what is the right rebalance frequency to sort of maximize the the horizon over which your alpha has predictive efficacy and you're not you can still overcome t costs and then once that is set. So say you think the optimal rebalance frequency for value is every 6 months. What you would then do is say okay, now how do I break up that rebalance schedule? So instead of just January and June, I might be also February and July and and March and August. And you keep breaking it into as many sort of sub-schedules as you can that are equally spaced apart. Um, Ideally, you do that as much as possible. Like uh, quants like AQR, for example, will take that and do it daily, right? so Other they're incrementally; tra- they're just trading some increment of. They are trading a very small portfolio part of the portfolio every day, right? So you could argue if if you're rebalancing once every six months, you basically want to rebalance two two hundred and fifty seconds of your portfolio every day. It's a small amount, and it's probably not feasible for most in people at home. But it would be the equivalent of saying, like, uh, if you're doing this at home and you think it's every six months, every month you should turn over one sixth of your portfolio. Like rebalance one sixth of it, keep the other five sixths constant. That's if you're taking a quantitative approach, because there are yes. some people who listen to this who are just value guys. They're like, uh, why don't I just sell it when it gets overvalued? Which is which is also and you can do that as well, right? Absolutely. So so the quantitative, right? So the way I would say that is like when I go to turn over that part of my portfolio, it's not like I'm just selling everything indiscriminately. I'm looking at what's st- like. There's going to be things that stay there. It's just that is the proportion of the portfolio that I'm looking at and those holdings have been there for six months and it's time for me to refresh whether those holdings should still be there or whether I should get rid of them. Now, to your point, Toby, like I could buy something and a month later, it could be massively overvalued. And like, I might just like, do I just hold it for another six months? Like that's where the nuance and subtlety comes in. Whatever you do will be the wrong thing to have done. If you sell it, it goes on for a multi-decade run. If you don't sell it, it returns to where it was. (laughs) Spot on. So what 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 is uh, your your two thing? You're, you've got a return stacked bond and managed futures ETF RSBT. What does RSBT do? Yeah. So uh, 
I'm going to back up for a second and just sort of give a little bit of background. So I, I am CIO of Newfound Research. We're a quantitative investment firm. Most of my career, I've been focusing on alternatives. And I have uh, mostly work in the advisor channel. So I'll make my strategies available via separately managed accounts or mutual funds or ETFs and try to convince financial advisors why alternatives are good for their clients. And if you know anything about alternative investing over the last decade, it's kind of been like value investing where it's just sucked. And you can make all the arguments you want, but it's just really hard for people to hold on to some of that stuff after a while behaviorally. And I got to the end of maybe 2020 and I was just sort of like banging my head on the wall and saying like, why I'm fighting an uphill battle trying to get people to invest in alternatives when in reality, they're all just looking at the historical performance. And, and I thought there's really got to be a, a better way to get people to invest in alternatives. And I, and I want to back up and say, I don't just like alternatives are just not on standalone good. Like, I don't think people should invest in alternatives just because alternatives are some good thing. My core argument is that diversification is good. Like if all things equal, you want a more diversified portfolio. It compounds with greater certainty. It actually compounds at a higher rate if you can use diversification to reduce portfolio volatility while maintaining the same expected return. Diversification is wonderful. I just look at alternative asset classes as a way to introduce diversification into the portfolio. So the question became, how can you get alternatives into someone's portfolio who is in like at this point way too sensitive to what happens with their underlying, say, 60-40 benchmark? And the answer was to look at what institutions have been doing for decades. Um, and they use this concept called portable alpha, which goes back to the 1980s, which basically says, well, instead of trying to um, beat the market by uh, picking stocks better or picking bonds better, what we're going to do is we're going to replace the beta of our portfolio with really capital efficient derivatives. So 60% stocks, instead of finding managers who will pick stocks, we're going to take 5% of that cash, hold it as collateral, buy S&P futures that'll give us the same notional exposure as the 60%. And then I've got 55% of my cash that I can go invest however I want. Uh, PIMCO does something like this in their Stocks Plus program, and they invest in super high quality short-term bonds with the goal of just saying they think that they can generate some extra yield that can outperform the financing rate embedded in those futures. Other institutions and endowments said, oh, we can take that and we can go find what they think are true alpha sources. They could go invest in litigation finance. They could go invest in relative value volatility strategies, whatever weird hedge fund they wanted. When you put that all back together as an x-ray, what effectively it looks like is you maintain your core beta, you maintain your 60-40, and all those alternatives are basically slapped on top as an overlay. And we looked at that and said, that actually is a pretty powerful framework for investors. If you can figure out a way to, to bring it to them right, where they don't have to manage the derivatives exposure. And so that's where return stacking was really born. Um, the phrase return stacking comes from my colleague, Rodrigo Gordillo at Resolve Asset Management. We co-authored a paper on this. And we call it return stacking because the whole idea is you're just ultimately stacking returns on top of each other. Um, so the ETF you mentioned, the return stacked bonds and managed futures, the idea is for every dollar you give us, we're going to give you a dollar of US bond exposure and then a dollar of a managed future strategy. And so for investors who might want to allocate to a managed future strategy, instead of having to sell stocks and bonds to make room, what they can do is they can sell some bonds, buy this ETF, they retain the bond exposure, and the managed futures are now layered on top. And ideally, that helps create a more sustainable portfolio through a decade like the 2010s, where managed futures mostly went sideways. You know, when you sell bonds and stocks to buy something that went sideways, not only is your money going sideways, but you're miss it's the opportunity yeah. cost of all the things that did well. When you treat it as an overlay, you retained your beta and going sideways doesn't hurt you. And then you're able to hold on to it for a period like 2022 when managed futures finally did something for your portfolio. And if you're rebalancing that, then you're getting the bonds are going up because interest rates were generally falling through that period of time. So you're increasing your incrementally increasing your exposure to the managed futures every time. Yep. You yeah, exactly. Right? So you're, you're rebalancing and you're maintaining hopefully that basically 100%, 100% notional match. Yeah, that's nice. And you're going to do that in equities as well. Are you allowed to talk about your return stacked stock and managed uh, futures <laughs> ETF? 
I'm not allowed to talk about it. You should call it RSST. That would be a good ticker. Yeah, that, that would be a good ticker. I am not allowed <laughs> to talk about it. Uh, for for people who it, are unaware, uh, the way regulations work is when you file for a new ETF, you go into what's called a quiet period. And until the SEC, I guess they don't technically approve. You just go once you until you get through their process of review, you're not allowed to talk about anything that they is don't tell publicly you no. Which is a little weird because it is publicly filed. Like anyone can look up any of my public filings as to what I'm interested in launching. But if I talk about it, it would be considered pre-selling. So I will not talk about that. But thank you for bringing it up. (laughs) No no worries at all. Let me just do a quick shout out because there's uh, uh, some good spread. And then we're going to do JT's. uh, JT gives us veggies. Sterling, Scotland, Madison, Wisconsin, Boston, Massachusetts, Oaxaca. Mexico, how did I go with that? Philadelphia, Seven Lina, Finland, Tallahassee. What's up? Navari Beach, normally Mississippi, Chapel Hill, Miami, Switzerland. What's up? Las Vegas, Scotch Plains. Nobody from oh, Mendocino. What's up? California, Toronto, you Trinidad, get, and Tobago. Great mix. This is a good mix, isn't it? Dominican Republic, Santa Domingo. Nobody from Bendigo this time around. Moncton, Canada. Sorry, I skipped you. What's the, what is the weirdest place? I don't want to say weird. I mean, like, had, what's the, what's the like most remote place you've had? Uh, we've got a regular. Who, yeah, we've got a regular from an offshore. Rig. Really? <laughs> he, he does in live. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's fun. JT does um, veggies every week. It's uh, your opportunity to edify yourself. Well, that's this is a. It's good having Corey here because he's giving us some veggies as well. It's all yeah, veggies. I, I, I want to point out something I just learned. You know, vegetables don't exist. Wait a second. Not to ruin it for you, JT. But whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> vegetables don't exist. Scientifically and botanically, a vegetable is not a thing. Vegetable matter? Just something that's growing? That's not a thing? It's, no, it's not a thing. So think of it. Think of any vegetable, right? Uh, a carrot? Nope, that's not. That's a root. A mm. pea? Nope, that's oh, a seed. Vegetables scientifically don't exist. They only exist culinarily. So my understanding was it was just so JT the, now now spin spin with that. It was the edible <laughs> yeah. part of the it was the edible part of anything that is vegetable matter, but fruit was a specific case, which was the, the fruit. Yeah, so I not true. I'll defer to you. This is all beyond my pay grade. <laughs> those are my those are my vegetables for the day. On to yeah, you, that's JT. Great. My kids will be so excited to hear that. Yeah. yeah. You don't you don't have to eat it because they're not real. Uh so we are going to be talking about the SS Eastland, and I changed my background as a little foreshadowing, but um, everybody knows the story of the Titanic. And, you know, 1912, it hits an iceberg crossing the Atlantic, sinks to a watery grave. More than 1,500 people perish. About 700 of those were crew members. Um, but there's another sunken ship that actually killed even more passengers than the Titanic. Uh, and so on the morning of July 24th, 1915, The passengers began boarding the SS Eastland on the south bank of the Chicago River, downtown Chicago. And it was a cargo ship that had been converted into a passenger ship. And it was, you know, shuttle people around the Great Lakes. And the ship quickly reached its capacity of 2,500 plus people. And many of the passengers were standing around up on the upper deck. And the ship began to list slightly to the port side, which is away from the wharf. And the you know the crew attempted to stabilize the ship by pumping water into the ballast tanks, but to little avail. And at 7:28 a.m., the Eastland lurched sharply to port and then rolled completely onto the port side, and it came to rest on the river bottom, which is only 20 feet six meters for our uh, non-US uh, below the surface. And barely half of the vessel was even submerged, but many of the passengers had already moved below deck, and so hundreds were trapped inside. Uh, uh, by the water and the sudden rollover, and some were crushed by you know heavy furniture or all kinds of stuff falling over. And the ship, even though it was only 20 feet from the wharf, and there was a, a nearby vessel that responded quickly, and people were able to you know jump off uh, onto this this other ship. Um, 844 people ended up, and four crew members ended up dying. So, which ended up being more passengers than the Titanic, even. And they're they're related in a very instructive way. So. The Federal Seamen's Act, uh, hold your jokes, was passed in 1915 uh, following the Titanic disaster uh, that had happened three years earlier. 
And th that law required the retrofitting of all ships to contain a complete set of lifeboats, which seems like, oh yeah, that's that's probably an obviously smart thing to do. However, and one of the boats that was was retrofitted was the SS Eastland. And the problem was that this these additional lifeboats made an already top heavy boat even more prone to listing. And that extra weight topside contributed to the ship tipping over and killing more passengers than the Titanic. So um, you know, investors, I think, often suffer from kind of a similar fate here where, you know, they get burned by something um, or, you know, they're like like the general who was fighting the last war. They, you know, they it's the cat that sits on the, the hot stove and they swear off of it. But then, you know, they'll also never sit on the cold stove again. And, you know, it's often that uh, a very uh, otherwise healthy risk appetite can be ruined even for an, a generation of investors uh, who get burned by this. Um, so. Let's let's turn our attention a little bit now to what this bigger idea of this law of unintended consequences, because that's really what we're talking about here. And there are three kinds of unintended consequences. You have the unexpected drawback, which is you know a detriment that occurs in addition to the desired effect. You have a perverse result, which is actually you know an intended solution that makes the problem worse. Um, you know, in the SS Eastland case, you know the goal was saving lives, and it ended up taking lives. Um, and and if, by the way, if you want a master's course in negative unintended consequences, I would suggest reading Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. It's it's the first edition was published in 1946, and it's still as relevant today as ever. Um, and then lastly, the third version of unintended consequences are positive unexpected, unanticipated outcomes. So this now brings us to Frederick Hayek. And in Hayek, he wrote this 1945 landmark article called The Use of Knowledge in Society. And he argues that a centrally planned economy can never match the efficiency of an open market because what is known by a single agent is only a small fraction of the sum total of knowledge that's held by all the members of society. And, and this knowledge is unevenly distributed. Therefore, decisions are best made by those with the local knowledge rather than by some central authority. And you know, this a decentralized economy then complements this dispersed nature of information. And Hayek was awarded a Nobel Prize in economics largely for this insight. And you know, the the counterexample is always like you know the Soviets when they tried to administer uncertainty out of existence through government fiat and planning, they ended up choking off social and economic progress. And they were they were missing that spontaneous order, that actually positive unintended consequence that comes out of a free market. Um, and just as a kind of a fun side note, uh, Jimmy Wales, who was the founder of Wikipedia, he he cites the use of knowledge in society that article by Hayek, uh, which he read as an undergraduate student as one of is really central to his thinking about how he designed and managed Wikipedia. Um, so although no one plans it, there's these positive expected outcomes that that happen from free markets from the invisible hand, um, and so <clears throat> that that unfettered price change behavior is what creates the feedback loops. That that you know to me is is actually like kind of a wonder of the world that that actually works. Um, you know I'm continually amazed by that. Um, and you know Warren Buffett, I always try to tie it back to something Warren said because he's got a great quote for everything. But you know in almost every single AGM that if you listen to it, um, he talks about anytime he's talking about economics or pol policies, anything he says you always have to ask and then what. Um, so. I, I would encourage like when you look, you ask yourself and then what, think about both positive and negative unintended consequences. And, you know, perhaps something as simple and as seemingly smart as requiring lifeboats to, to rescue people could end up with deadly unintended consequences. Do you think you get canceled for those sort of free market views these days? Is YouTube going to shut us down for that? I, for one, welcome our new World Economic Forum overlords. <laughs> Eat the bugs, Toby. <laughs> I don't That's know. Fast, if, so if they do, ask, then I'm cancel me. That's fine. Can I ask some questions here, Jake? Because that's a, the East. The Eastman's a fascinating case of like you talk about the local knowledge, and you really have to wonder: was there someone locally who understood the implications of adding all those lifeboats to a top-heavy boat, or whether it was the case of there was no one, like the captain wasn't there saying this is more unsafe, and you needed the accident to occur, as horrific as it is, to recognize the issues with. The regulation. No, people knew about it, and they were arguing against the the bill being passed for that exact reason. And then it went on to happen. So, okay then. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the Fed, 
How do you like the uh, how do you like the chances of a ten three inversion, Corey, as a quant? Do you, do you look at that at all? Not enough ends. Um, I I don't look at it. I I it doesn't particularly it doesn't, doesn't doesn't rise to uh, statistical significance. Here. No, there's so there's sort of two two parts to it. One, um, I don't I don't, I don't want to phrase this. One, it doesn't have a tremendous amount of robustness outside the U.S. Right. So you talk about a statistical signal that you take you take the inversion and you look outside the U.S. and you say that doesn't work as a signal at all. And then you look at the the number of ends in the U.S. and you go, maybe that's like we're not the exception here. Maybe that just got lucky of all the countries. I'm sure I can find some other rule that worked in some other country very well. Right. So so maybe Cam Harvey just got very lucky lately. Right. With the inversion. You know, everyone always talks about the inversion as being a precursor to a recession because the expectation is that the Fed is going to cut, hence lower long-term rates. I feel like there just hasn't been enough discussion of, well, the expectation can also be that just inflation is coming down, right? If you expect a lot of inflation in the short term, but no inflation in the long term, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be that the Fed is going to cut meaningfully. It could be just be that there's an inflation premium that investors are demanding in the front end of the curve to be willing to hold bonds during a period of higher inflation, right? right. So the, the real curve looks flat at that right. point. And, and so I feel like there hasn't been a tremendous amount of nuanced discussion around what are the actual risk premia that are embedded in the yield curve. And instead, you just get a lot of people saying tens, threes, you know, or whatever your, your choice Inverted. is. Get, the, In, yeah. get into the bunker. It's a much better headline, right? All the, all that nuance doesn't make a good headline. What about it just as being a demonstration of what the Fed is actually doing? Because they can't control longer rates. They've got, or they've got less control over longer rates. They can control the short rates. They do right. pin up the short-term rates that then manifests in a 10-3 inversion or whatever it is, 10 to take your pick of whichever inversion it is. And they keep it there because they're trying to conquer inflation or whatever the case may be. But it's a very slow moving, you know, when they raise rates, it seems to be it's like two years before it takes, before anything really happens. So they raise rates and that that, that gets reflected early on in an inver- inverted yield curve, but nothing happens for a period of time. And then when it does happen, they start cutting as quickly as they can. So the yield curve uninverts, but right. because the lag is two years, it's sort of... I, well, I've, what was what did Cam's original paper say? The, what the lag was because we're well past the lag of the original inversion. No, right? we're not. We're not because he he says on average is twelve months from inversion to declaration of a recession. So that would be October twenty five this year. The shortest period of time was six months, which would have been April twenty five. Longest period of time was fifteen, which would be January twenty twenty four. And decla- the, the 25th declaration of, of an official recession. Declaration, yeah. Which is not even feasible right now, right? Um, I'm not we, sure. You'd have to have a restatement of Q2 GDP, wouldn't you? You'd have to. I don't know. You'd, I, I don't. I find the declaration a little bit unhelpful because I don't. I think that there's a lot of politics in the in the. I don't think it's a purely statistical quantitative measure. You know, we're we're currently in the largest earnings recession outside of a declared recession. Now you could say that maybe that's some weird effects of. All right, so so lay, lay that out for me because aren't we aren't we seeing the one of the greatest numbers of positive earnings surprises? But that's again, that's just sandbag and then coming over the top. Uh, yeah, I mean perhaps, but you you've seen a massive uh, comeback in earnings expectations, right? Like like I think you like I'd have to look at the earnings growth charts, but you saw a big dip and it's and it's still an, in an ascension. Like the rate of change is still positive for earnings, right? I don't know. I'm not sure. The last, I, I, yeah, I don't know either. The last thing that I saw was just that the last earnings number was off nine percent from the peak. All right, I'll which is look. big. Like, that's a pretty big drawdown. That's a big you know, expansion. I, I literally have my Bloomberg open right now. I'm sure I can try to find the answer. Yeah, pull it up. <laughs> yeah, the hive mind. I'm sure it can help. I, yeah. When you when you look at when you look at the way that strategies work in other countries, I mean, it's been one of the. You know, Japan, for example, has always defied on momentum. And I know that Cliff wrote a paper, Cliff Asness wrote a paper about it. Like, why does momentum not work in Japan? I don't know how long ago that came out now, 10 or 15 years, probably. You, you familiar with that paper? 
Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while since I've read it. I think you just uh, said it was the statistical anomaly. Yeah. Look, at a, at a certain point, like the way you can find a positive statistical anomaly, you can find a negative statistical anomaly. Yeah. Right. Like you, you test enough things, it's bound to not work somewhere. Um, for the same reason, if you test enough things, you're bound to find something that works. Like, like statistics work, work both ways. So I'm just, all right. So this might be wrong, but I'm looking at, right. Earnings per share of the S and P 500. Uh, the trough was July. Well, hold on. Yeah. It trough July, 2023. And has since been marching back up through August. That must be expected. What, what is that that they're measuring there? I have to look at the description of this exact measure. This is the best EPS on um, Bloomberg. But I think this is as reported. Anyway. I kind of know. Like Listen, throw- every, everyone is going to skew. I, I'm not. I, I went back. Let me go back. Let me rewind. Let me <laughs> replay some of the things I've said. Because I said coming out of COVID, and this might just be my like... 2008 over influence over indexing like the we have to experience a real recession right if you're telling me that we can have the threat of a massive economic contraction and we can have stimulus via monetary and fiscal policy and we don't suffer a massive real contraction now that doesn't mean nominal growth can't be positive like real economic growth has to be negative If we don't have that, either shallow over a long period of time or acute over a short period of time, you've basically eliminated economic risk. You've basically said that the the government can get rid of the left tail. In which case, if we actually believe that, I would argue stock prices should be substantially higher because they have substantially less risk, and therefore they should have much less of a risk premium. Right? You should run with more leg- leverage too, as a result. Absolutely, it becomes a, it, and then right? that increases your risk. So aggregate valuation ratios should go way up. Like I sit there and I go again, and maybe maybe like two thousand eight, there was an argument that we exported a lot of the recession pain elsewhere. Maybe we've managed to export some of our economic contraction and inflation elsewhere. Well. Who knows? History isn't fully written yet, but I am ultimately confounded. So when I say like, I don't, maybe, maybe we're not going to have a recession. Like I was all on board that like, if we don't have a recession, my fundamental understanding of asset pricing is totally broken. So I'm just, I'm incredibly confused. Now that hasn't influenced the way I manage money in particularly, but like, like from a philosophical perspective, none of this makes any sense to me. Well, layer on top of that too, like, Everything was just cranking for U.S. business. You had profit margins as high as ever, corporate tax rates as about as low as they've ever been. Um, employees like share like wages of the pie, you know, has been very small. A lot of bargaining power for corporations versus their employees. Uh, interest rates super low, so debt is super cheap. I mean, every single thing that you had going for you to really like push the price of a company up happened and was there. Can you do that all over again for the next 10 years? I, I'm a little skeptical of that. Well, and I think you're starting to see, and this isn't a novel view, but like the debt um, refinancing cycle could get Mm -hmm. pretty ugly. And I think in particular in the small cap space where earnings are substantially lower and there's a lot less bargaining power on the debt side. Like I, I am sure that there will be careers made with value managers in the small cap space over the next decade, because I have to imagine there is just going to be a lot of rubble to pick through in in the refinancing debacle that'll happen. But I'm not sure it really matters. Like, I'm not sure Disney gives a shit, right? Like the the ability for them to raise capital and and the amount of pensions and institutions and retirees who are always going to buy Disney bonds, like the demand is there. So I'm not sure they're like you look at the long end of the yield curve, like how much has it really gone up versus the ZERP environment? Not for the big companies. I saw one chart that showed like interest expense has only gone up for small cap companies. Right. Like mm-hmm. no one else has really suffered, you know, this kind of a reset in a rate environment. So I think until you see, and I guess, right. So, so Toby, to go back to your inversion question, like 
tens twos or tens threes, are you going to see an actual steepening of the curve from the back end or is the back end just going to stay where it is and the front end's coming back down? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's how it runs betting, right? I mean, that's, I don't know, (laughs) but I, I sort of tend to think that there's a fed fed looking at inflation, eyeballing it, trying to like land the shuttle on the moon or whatever they're trying to do They're, you know, without, without instruments. And so they're going to, they're going to keep on raising until something breaks, which will be probably office breaks, and then uh, all of the equity and the debt in there, which then bleeds into regional banks. And that I think it's it looks something like that, but that probably means they're going to pull the front end down, which means rates come down. I don't I don't think you mean like com- commercial real estate will be the tipping point. You think? Yeah, office yeah. commercial office as the subset of commercial, and then that hurts regional banks because they've got all the exposure to that stuff. I was just Which talking think- with a buddy yesterday about that with the office space and and so many people not going back to work. How do you repurpose all that downtown office space? Right? You like you've got 60 stories that can't be turned residential because they're not structured for it. They don't have the plumbing. What are you going to do? Mm. Like put a restaurant on each floor? Like what do you do with these buildings other than wait for the the person who owns it to default, destroy them and rebuild them as residential? But if there's no jobs in the cities anymore, what are people living there for? Other than just they like the urban life, it's an interesting conundrum. Yeah, you can get a little. I bit said, of I said, I'd buy an entire it. floor. I'll buy an entire commercial floor <laughs> yeah, and live the there. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right? like I, that, I'll turn that into residential. Yeah, yeah. I'll just run so a garden I'll... hose up the side of the building. <laughs> yeah, most floors have at least one suite of bathrooms. You know, good enough. David Wilson says most corporate debt isn't due until 2030. I'm not sure about that. I thought I thought 2024 and 2025 were big years of uh, having to roll that stuff. I don't know. I don't know. We're in a fun, we're in a funny we're in a funny space. I I, I don't know because I think I, I mean I look at I think multiples are pretty stretched here. Everything looks pretty stretched to me. And. Um, the underlying Toby, does... having known you since 2015, yeah, I, do, I, I don't I think you've ever that. not said that. I don't think I've ever <laughs> sat down with you and had you not say multiples don't look stretched. So, to be, yeah, to be fair, I'm always like medium, short to medium term bearish, long term bullish. I think that's like the optimal. That's where you that just, your... but that just rolls forward perpetually. Yeah, right. So yeah. I don't know if you ever roll into bullish. To be fair, I was, I was, I was pretty bullish to at the bottom fair. in 2020. <laughs> I, th- I think, I think uh, the optimal setting for a value guy is like. Short to medium term bearish, long term bullish. That's where I feel like I'm always like it's going to suck for the next two to five years. But beyond that, these these things are cherry. They're good. They're money good. <laughs> Maybe I'm just justifying it. So what's think- what's what's interesting? What's what's coming down the pike for uh, what, what what what's the landscape look like to you? Like what's your what's your setting? What's my setting? what's your default setting? And what do you think is a little different from that? Um. Look, I think we went through a period where inflation didn't matter. And so there's a lot of like consolidation in the industry to an investment approach that ultimately ignored inflation as a risk factor, particularly among retirees who are highly sensitive to it. Um, and I, at least for me, again, I'm talking my own book, but I look at you have to have stocks and bonds. Those are the de facto risk premia that I think are do are the major muscle movements of wealth creation over the long run. I certainly wouldn't want to get rid of that. But I do look at it as saying if we went basically 20 years where inflation and inflation volatility were non-issues. If you start talking about inflation volatility picking up not even a lot, just a little, the expected correlation profile between stocks and bonds changes pretty dramatically. Mm. Therefore, the volatility profile of a 60-40 changes pretty dramatically. And the reason that's important is because when you do financial planning, that volatility plays into the certainty with which people can plan their financial future. So you have to suddenly say, well, that 60-40 investor might actually have to be more like less um, aggressive because they need to bring the volatility profile down. So maybe they should really be 50-50 or 40-60. Or you need to find other ways to bring commodities or some, you know, I don't know, inflation swaps, greater reliance on tips, whatever, you know, managed futures is obviously my preference uh, into the portfolio as a third leg of the stool to help manage some of that inflation risk. But I think we've seen like the competitive pressures in this industry. When you have 20 years of something not mattering, 
the only people who survived at the end of those 20 years are the people who got rid of that thing. And so from a like hedge management perspective, um, I think we're massively just as an industry, when I talk to advisors and I look at their book of business, like they're, they're very sensitive to inflation risk. And I think we're just starting to turn the corner of whether if it does continue to matter, start to see some meaningful allocation shifts as to how those portfolios have to be built. You mean sensitive? I, I think you're right, Corey. Sorry, Jesse. And the uh, maybe if it's even longer than that, and it's really been a since the early '80s a one-way interest rate bet that has been made by. A, and if you made the right bet over that time period, you survived and looked like a genius. And especially if maybe you levered it up a little bit along right. the way. Um, but I don't. I'm not sure how that looks for the next forty years. Yeah, I mean, I think the question the question I always like to ask myself philosophically is like, if I had to put this away and never touch it, right, what does that portfolio look like? Well, that I think most people would agree that portfolio is going to look substantially different. And then people go, yeah, but that's not realistic. I can touch it. And then I go, okay, how good is your ability to time the market? Because that's effectively what you're saying when you're saying I can touch it, you know? And most people don't have a very good ability to time the market. So wouldn't you rather default to a diversified portfolio, which by the way, the more diversified your portfolio is, the higher the hurdle rate is for timing decisions to add value. So I just think from that perspective, like, again, I recognize advisors run a business, but their revenue is directly tied to the revenue weighted average allocation of their clients. The more volatile that asset allocation is of their clients, the more volatile the advisor's revenue is. And so I think it's in everyone's interest from the client whose financial plan is trying to be locked in, as well as the advisor who ultimately generates revenue from the client's assets. The more diversified that portfolio is, the more resilient it is to different economic environments. Again, if if we think inflation volatility is a potential risk over the next decade, plus or certainly just more of a risk than it's been over the last 20 years realized, I, I think you have to start to see a shift in how portfolios are being built. Nobody wants to drive around with the brakes on though. <laughs> that's kind well, of... and again, that's <laughs> so, so not to again, talk my own book, but that's why I'm trying to make ways in which yeah. these things can be overlaid instead of, so you don't have to sell your stocks and bonds, right. And, and have the brakes on at all times. You can, you know, add a third leg of the stool that is an overlay to the portfolio and, and hopefully have some, positive influence over the long run. The other way, by the way, like I talk about overlays all the time. Like when you talk about a, a value tilt, someone being a value investor, like that is inherently a long short overlay on an equity benchmark. Like it's not explicitly traded as an overlay, but you can disentangle those things and say, I own US equities. I implicitly short all this stuff I don't want to own. I'm extra long this stuff I do want to own. That thing can be looked at in isolation. That Those are the active decisions you're making as a value manager. Like That is an overlay. And you can look at how that thing has historically done during periods of inflation. right? There are some people who argue that um, value is an inflation hedge. I don't particularly ascribe to that theory, um, but it's debatable. Yeah, I'm not sure what the answer is there either. I I've looked at them through inf inflationary periods and I think it's worked, but I've never done it explicitly backing out. Well, I think you have market. a lot of people who say value is, is a low duration compared to growth, yeah. right? So if you go, if you're, you know, long value, implicitly short growth, you, you've got a negative or you get a negative duration bet when they go, if, if inflation rates are going to go up, isn't that the bet you want? I actually, I'm probably going to get crucified for this on a value podcast. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I know everyone says value is short duration and growth is long duration because because of the earnings and it sounds really good. There is yeah. zero evidence yeah. academically that the long short value uh, factor has any relationship with rates. Yeah. Yeah, it makes so much sense to me as a uh, as a story, but yeah, there's no evidence for it. I think so. Cliff, Cliff had a pretty good... Cliff's colleagues had a pretty good close look at it. And then Cliff said he was going to brute force some answer, but didn't ever actually get around to doing that. So I, I got to say, I love Cliff. I hate the fact that everything in my career, Cliff has done before me. Like, you ever <laughs> you ever see that South Park episode where it's like the Simpsons, Simpsons did, did it? it? Yeah. I feel like my entire career has just been, well, Cliff did that. And I, I like write a paper and they're like, that's great. But Cliff wrote one 20 years ago on the same thing. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I have no original ideas. But that's good. You're getting to that point. And yeah. Yeah, it's the same for it's the same. What for, are you getting uh, to what point? The point of giving up? 
<laughs> That's the point I'm getting to. Fellas, uh, it's, it's time. We made it. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, thanks. It's an good absolute to see pleasure, boys. Great to chat to you. To you. Uh, folks want to follow along with what you're doing and get in contact. What's the best way to do that? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at C Hofstein, or you can uh, go to returnstacks.com. Nice. What about you, JT? Uh, it doesn't matter. I'll be here next week. Journalytic. <laughs> 